As we continue worshiping together today, receive these words of scripture from Micah, chapter six. Hear what the Lord says. Rise, plead your case before the mountains and let the hills hear your voice. Hear, you mountains, the controversy of the Lord and you enduring foundations of the earth. For the Lord has a controversy with his people and he will contend with Israel. Oh, my people, what have I done to you? And what have I wearied you? Answer me. For I brought you up from the land of Egypt and redeemed you from the house of slavery and sent you before Moses, Aaron, and Miriam. Oh, my people, remember now what King Balak of Moab devised, what Balaam, son of Bor, answered him, and what happened from Shittim to Gagal, that you may know the saving acts of the Lord. With what shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before God on high? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with ten thousands of rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? He has told you, O Marshal, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you but to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God? Receive what the Spirit is saying. Thanks be to God. Good morning. Uh, to know me well, or to know me at all, is to know that I love Foundry Church. I love the way Foundry is thoughtful and intentional about the way we engage with our community and the wider world. I have a deep respect for our long history and our willingness to acknowledge when, during that history, we've gotten something wrong. I am grateful for the work and the witness of our pastors and our staff, especially over the last three years of COVID and unrest. Of course, for good reason, I am in awe of our choir. They can sing a high church hymn, the most difficult piece of classical music, and still manage to clap on the one and three during a gospel song. Clapping on the two and four, sometimes a little more of a challenge, but the one and three, they've got, they've got down. And I love that the mission of our church is as simple as it is difficult. To love God, to love each other, and to change the world. It is a gift to be in the foundry pulpit. I also want to recognize that we gather this Sunday following the release of two videos displaying shocking and detestable violence. The first is a video of violence born out of political and ideological extremism and fueled by misinformation, the attack on Paul Pelosi in his own home. Even worse, on Friday night, 
a video of unspeakable violence committed by the state itself, by the very people who are supposed to protect and defend the senseless, brutal, shameful murder of Tyree Nichols. Will you join me this morning in prayer? God, thank you for bringing us together this morning and for all the ways you offer your mercy and grace. We pray this morning for the recovery of Paul Pelosi and for his family. We pray, O oh God, for an end to political violence fueled by extremism. God, we pray this morning for the family of Tyree Nichols and for all the people who loved him. We pray for an end to the senseless violence that plagues our communities, an end to the flagrant abuse of power like that displayed in Memphis. We pray for the city of Memphis. We pray for justice to be done. This morning, Father, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O God, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. The Bible is complicated. Yes, it can be life-giving, it can be inspiring and challenging and beautiful, but the Bible is complicated. Full of unfamiliar language about distant lands in long-ago times, full of headline-grabbing stories, there are parables and poems and prophetic visions and scripture that have raised questions and sparked a deep disagreement for centuries, even millennia. Scripture has been used as a call for peace and an excuse for a war. Abolitionists and slaveholders argued that their interpretation of the gospel was the interpretation of the gospel. Scripture has been used to divide the church into factions and denominations, used as a weapon to threaten schism in our own United Methodist Church, used to prop up immoral leaders and to call for revolution, not to mention an entire industry made out of study Bibles. There are stories of parting seas and burning bushes and lion's dens and demon pigs and bloody rivers and big fish. Theologians, rabbis, scholars, priests, and others spend their entire lives researching and questioning and debating the meaning of a single word or a turn of phrase. For some, these debates are invigorating. It makes them love the Bible even more. Some argue that even debating the Bible is a form of heresy, and for others, it appears as an obstacle to their own faith. And while these debates go on, there are those passages and themes throughout the New and Old Testament that shine with clarity and simplicity even when the backstory is a little more complicated. Love God and neighbor. Forgive others and ask for forgiveness from others. Be slow to anger and quick with kindness. We arrive at one of those stories and passages ending with Micah's exhortation, God has told you, O mortal, what is good? He goes on to ask, What does the Lord require of you but to do justice and love kindness and to walk humbly with God? Now, as with most things that appear 
simple and straightforward. And as with most prophets, there is a backstory, and so a little background is in order. In this short and compelling book, Micah, an 8th century B.C. prophet, is on a mission. Before we arrive at our reading in chapter 6, Micah has been warning Israel that something bad is coming, that the consequences of their sin are just around the corner. He proceeds to make his case to call out the ruling class and unjust religious leaders and the rich and the powerful. At the beginning of chapter 2, Micah is focused on the social and economic injustices against those without power and without privilege. He calls out those who devise evil deeds at night and commit them in the morning because it is in their power to do so. He zeroes in on the unjust and the greedy, acts of the powerful who seize fields and houses and oppress the people that live in them, robbing them of their few resources and their inheritance. He accuses them of driving women from their home and rising up against their own people. And if that was not enough, he continues in chapter 3, this time setting his sights on the rulers and the prophets and the religious leaders. Micah accuses them of hating good and loving evil, even when they know better. In verse 11, he calls out rulers who take bribes before making their judgments. He calls out priests who teach, but only for a price, and prophets who give counsel and make predictions, but only for money. Now, to be clear, this is not the first time that we have witnessed oppression against the poor, in the stories of the Bible. And from cover to cover, God makes clear through Revelation exactly whose side he is on and what he expects from us in response. This is exactly Micah's point. But let's face it, it's a point that's been made before. It's a point that's made throughout the New Testament. It's a point that is made in our headlines and on our nightly news. It is a point that goes often unheard. But throughout the Bible, one of the most common themes is how God views and how he expects us to respond to the poor and the oppressed. In the 22nd chapter of Exodus, do not take advantage of the widow or the fatherless. In the first chapter of Isaiah, learn to do right. Seek justice, defend the oppressed, Take up the cause of the fatherless, plead the case of the widow. In the 146th chapter of Psalm, the Lord watches over the foreigner or immigrant and sustains the fatherless and the widow. In Psalm chapter 82, defend the weak and the fatherless, uphold the cause of the poor and the oppressed. In Proverbs chapter 14, whoever oppresses the poor shows contempt for their maker, but whoever is kind to the needy honors God. Proverbs chapter 31, speak up for those who cannot speak for themselves for the rights of all who are destitute. Speak up and judge fairly. Defend the rights of the poor and needy. And in case the Old Testament isn't enough, the New Testament has a couple of things it would like to say. In the first chapter of James, religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless is this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress. And in the, first, in the third chapter of 1 John, this is how we know what love is. 
Jesus Christ laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. If anyone has material possessions and they see a brother or sister in need but has no pity on them, how can the love of God be in that person? Dear children, let us not love with words or speech, but with action and in truth. In other words, when it comes to the oppressed, when it comes to the poor, when it comes to gun violence, when it comes to racism, thoughts and prayers are not enough without action. First John has something really important to say to people that work just a couple of miles away. And I especially appreciate the emphasis on the poor, the widow, and the orphan. You see, long before I ever heard of an 8th century prophet named Micah, I knew the story of a 20th century waitress named Mary. At an early age and after the passing of her own mother, Mary's father came to the conclusion that he was unable to take care of his own children. And so he sent Mary's two brothers to one home and Mary to another to be adopted. Compounding the tragedy of the loss of her mother was the separation of her from her siblings. Unfortunately, the house where Mary arrived wasn't always full of love. Dealing with the loss of her own mother at a young age, Mary arrived to find that her adopted mother was often cold, if not cruel. Mary would go on to graduate from high school where she developed a love of basketball. In fact, her picture along with those of her teammates adorn a copy of the Athens County Messenger celebrating the county championship of the women's basketball team. Mary would go on to marry and divorce and marry again. But her second marriage was haunted by tumult and violence. Mary was repeatedly assaulted by her own husband, who in his vows had promised to love and cherish and honor her. In the first incident, he stabbed her 12 times with a butcher knife, and the second pistol-whipped Mary. She went into hiding, recognizing that her life and the lives of her five kids was at stake. But Mary's mother had a different idea of what it meant to be married and believed that another divorce was not an option. And so Mary's mother revealed where Mary was hiding, her safe space. And within the day, Mary's husband found her and shot her twice in the chest in front of her five children, including my three-year-old mom. My grandmother would survive all of this. She moved her family south in search of a new beginning. And for 30 years, Mary waited tables at a local restaurant where she treated all of her, cousin, her customers like family. She did not know a stranger. When she worked a late night or early morning shift, she would often wait a table on a table full of transgender women 
and drag queens from a secret gay bar just down the street from Miles' restaurant. Mary treated them so well, they would often tell her their own stories of abandonment and remark that they wished Mary was their mom. When others would snicker or point fingers, Mary would gently but firmly put an end to the mocking. If First John had a message to our political leaders about thoughts and prayers and action, Mary has a message from that restaurant about how our political leaders treat the LGBTQ community. Mary lived her life just above or below the poverty line. This orphan and widow constantly dealt with being poor, moving to a series of studio apartments and duplexes and single-wide trailers, always bringing one of her dogs, a bottle of bourbon, and for a while, her eight-track tape recorder. You see, Mary loved Waylon Jennings, the country singer who found remarkable ways to tell the story of people struggling in this life. But she loved Mahalia Jackson for the way she sang about the glory of the life to come. It is from those stories that Mary knew from the very beginning that she was a child of God, and so were all of the people around her. My grandmother Mary, the orphan, the widow, the poor, set the example for what it meant to be just and kind and humble. The question for us today is how do we respond to Micah's brutal assessment, the brutal truths he was presenting to Israel just as relevant today, and how do we respond to the lived experience of people like my grandmother? And that brings us to chapter 6 this morning. Our text begins with God taking his people to metaphorical court, where the mountains and the hills are the witnesses. And as the case is concluding, Israel asks Micah what they can do to placate God, to make this all go away, to get things back to normal. And in a pretty perfect example of missing the point, they don't offer to change their ways. They don't offer to right the wrongs. They don't offer to build a community where the people that they have oppressed are at the center and not at the margins. No, instead they offer material sacrifice. They ask, shall I come before you with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? They ask, will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams and tens of thousands of rivers of oil? It's not difficult to picture Micah's exasperation. For years he has been preaching laying out clearly all of the things being done, the bribes taken, the injustices delivered, the challenges that his people on the margins are, are facing. Year after year, there's no response. And now, and now they ask, how do I placate with rams and calves, with rivers of oil? And Micah replies, you already know what is good. 
You know because I've told you yes, but you know because God has delivered you before. God has delivered you from Egypt. God has delivered you when he parted seas. God has repeatedly delivered you, provided justice, and treated you with kindness and mercy. And so what does the Lord require of you but to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God? Now, we've already established that this is done in the context of a metaphorical court proceeding, and so it's revealing that the word justice here is actually the Hebrew word mishpat, which is a legal definition. To make a good judgment, to make the right judgment, to make a judgment that is free from bias, to judge someone guilty or innocent based on the merits of the case and not the bribe that they can pay. It's no surprise then, and it's no surprise now, that our court system does not work the same for the rich and powerful as it does for the poor. It goes without saying that we have people in jail in our own city and around the country who are guilty of small amounts of marijuana possession, who are the victim of three strikes or out rules that we know don't reduce crime and don't help the person that is in jail become an active, contributing member of society. Meanwhile, we know that there are rich and powerful people who can afford to pay millions of dollars in bond despite fleecing their customers, fleecing their friends and their family, fleecing perfect strangers. There are two types of justice. That was true in the times of Micah, and it is true today. Then Micah talks about kindness. Now, I want to be clear here. The kindness that Micah is talking about is not, is not niceness. Now, we've all seen niceness. Niceness papers over disagreement. We don't want to talk about something controversial or something that hurts. We don't want to bring up injustice. And so we just, we're nice. We're, we're the moderate middle that Martin Luther King talks about. We're nice. For those of you from the South, you'll recognize this as the bless your heart niceness, where the mouth says one thing, but the eyes say something else. The word, the Hebrew word used in this case is the word hesed, which is not about being nice. It's about expressing concern and offering compassion for another person, providing mercy and grace even if you believe that person doesn't deserve it. Again, this is nothing new. In the Old and New Testament, God and his son offer kindness, undeserved compassion. We, we see it over and over when Jesus greets the woman at the well. We see it when he turns water into wine, when he heals the leopard. We see it in the Good Samaritan, who, though ostracized himself, stops to help a stranger on the side of the road. God offers justice, and he expects justice. God offers kindness, mercy, and grace, and he expects us to share that with those around us. Finally, he talks about walking humbly. Now, we live in one of the most type A cities anywhere in the world, and I think it's fair to say that we are in a congregation that might be full of an occasional type A person or two. 
For those of us that work in politics, we are surrounded by type A people who are designed to win, to beat the other side. And the thing I love about Micah and the thing I love about this image of humility and the definition of humility that I love the most Humility is when I spend more time thinking about what I can do better and what I can do differently than the time that I spend thinking about what you can do better and what you can do differently. Humility releases us from having to win. Humility acknowledges that God created all of us in his image and not the other way around. God created the conservative and the liberal. God created those who are leaving our denomination over LGBTQ issues, and he created the people who choose to stay. God created the Catholic and the Buddhist and the Methodist and the people of no faith at all. God created the University of Florida. And as much as it surprises me and as much as it hurts to say, God also created the University of Georgia. God created all of us. And so what he asks is, is as we are fervent, as we are fervent about justice, and we think we know everything there is to know and that our side is always moral and righteous, God says, take a step back. Reserve the right to be wrong. And in dealing with others, even those you disagree with, show some humility. Now, the reality is that Humility is not really the only obstacle. It's not only when we think too big, too high about ourselves. In some cases, injustice and unkindness comes when you think too little of yourself. I don't know about you, but the times that I am most unkind, the, time, the, the times where I have the most difficulty living up to this is the times that I actually feel the most insecure. And God says to us, no. Imagine what we would do, how we would live our lives if we all really believe that God is always with us. Imagine the freedom that comes, freedom from insecurity, that you would feel if you knew that God was always in front of you, leading you, beside you, cheering you on, behind you, offering support with you and in you, and that you were free to treat people with kindness, not just because, by the way, they're receiving it, and it improves their life, but because it improves your life too. Towards the end of her life, my grandmother had this small booklet. And before she died, she gave it to me. It is the Christmas story as told in the Gospel of Luke. Throughout the book, she wrote a series of prayers for herself, for her children, and for her grandchildren all by name, just written in between the story, on the margins and in between new paragraphs. <laughs> she talked about how heartbroken when, when she was when she graduated high school because she thought she would never love anything like she loved the game of basketball until she had her kids. She asked God to forgive the husband who attacked her. 
because she had forgiven him. She prayed that God would help her make each day the very best she can. Don't let me hurt anyone, she wrote. Show me the way to help someone each day, if only to say hello. But the most remarkable thing, she thanked God for giving her a good life. An orphan who arrives at a home so cruel it feels like she has been orphaned again. The widow of a husband who took his own life after trying to take hers. The constant pain and worry of paying your bills, putting food on the table, paying medical care. It is humbling to read that she thanked God for a good life. Jesus built his ministry on earth using apostles who came from the ignored places. The poor, the tax collector, the ostracized, men and yes, women. And he repeatedly throughout his short time on earth was clear about what our response should be and about their place in this world and the next. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are the merciful, for they will receive mercy. Blessed is Tyree Nichols. Blessed is his family. Blessed are the refugees who will do almost anything to save the life of their child. Blessed are the veterans who come home to struggle with the hidden wounds of war. Blessed are the gay children and the trans men and women who face obstacle after obstacle after obstacle just to live the life that God called them to live. And woe to the people that stand in their way. Blessed are the families of Sandy Hook and Tree of Life and Mother Emanuel. Blessed are the families of Half Moon Bay and Rockford and Cleveland and High Point and Baltimore. Blessed are the unhoused. Blessed are the poor. Blessed are the widows. Blessed are the ostracized. Blessed are the undercounted. Blessed are the undervalued. Blessed are the orphans. And blessed is the waitress. Blessed is the waitress. And blessed are those that offer her justice and kindness and mercy and grace. Thank you.